You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying they call me Mr. Boy's best friend. Oh, you have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I decided to have the worst intestinal drama of my life, so I'm still on the mend from that. I also started a class to work up to be a volunteer responder in case anything crazy ever happens at work. So that's the next five Wednesdays of my life. Wednesday nights anyway. Other than that, Summer decided to roll into Los Angeles at last and just make up for lost time because it is a damn oven here today. So I'm staying inside and not going out until my friend's birthday party tonight because it is too damn hot. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got The Haunted Mansion. Now, Disney's been having a rough road for like the last year or two as the decline in the quality of their films and the oversaturation of the market with the superhero content and the Star Wars films has led to several severe costly losses. The movies just aren't making the money that they once used to because everyone's tired of them. Haunted Mansion is not going to turn that around for them, unfortunately. While it's significantly better than the 2003 film based on the theme park ride, this new Haunted Mansion has horrifically cheap CGI, which is a growing problem in the industry, which we'll talk about on a little bit later down the road and it also suffers from terrible editing and pacing and it's just the movie was felt very slapped together the good news is that the actors were busting their asses to try and make this movie good like the acting all of the performances very very good very strong so at the very least that makes it watchable but it doesn't you know get rid of the fact that it's, it's it was just a very sloppily put together film And, you know, with the success of the whole Barbenheimer thing last weekend, that's still very much going on this weekend. So this movie is going to have the misfortune of just wrong place, wrong time, not being good enough to outweigh two films that were obviously reviewed very, very highly last week. If Mission Impossible couldn't make it through, this for sure ain't. On to strike updates. Still par for the course. No news as to when the writers or the actors in the AMPTP are going to go back to the table. This week, Force Majeure will come up for the writers. And that means that studios can opt to void out their writing contracts if they so choose. This would mean dumping all of them, mind you, as the rules of Force Majeure for the most part prevents studios from picking and choosing which contracts they'd like to get rid of. It's very much like you either you don't get a cherry pick which ones you keep. So that's where we're at with that. And now on to this week's topic. This week, we're looking at a few films that are famous not only because of their subject matter or their quality or lack thereof, but also due to the fact that some believe that these films were cursed in one form or another. Could be the location they shot on or a series of inexplicable bad luck that befell individuals who worked on the film or who didn't work on the film. But yeah, we're going into uh, some back into spooky town this week. So here we go. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. 
You've probably never heard of this first film, or maybe you know it by reputation because it's the movie that has John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. But 1956's The Conqueror is considered one of the worst films ever made, the extreme whitewashing being a major culprit for this, but also a series of mysterious illnesses, if you want to call it that, that followed after the production wrapped. Wayne had lobbied hard to get this part, and even back in the 1950s where whitewashing was way too common, there were people in the industry at the higher up level that were like, no, I think this is a bad idea. Maybe we shouldn't have this Caucasian cowboy playing a Mongolian warlord. But it was John Wayne, and dude was going to get his way one way or another. Historically, that tended to be how it worked out. So the film went forward at RKO, and to show how much he appreciated getting the role after throwing many a tantrum, the actor was constantly drunk on this set, and the production as a whole was just plagued with issues. If that's not bad enough, the production of the film probably gave a lot of people cancer. Literal cancer. Of the 220 members of the cast and crew, not counting the extras, 91, so about 41% of them, developed cancer at some point in their lifetime. Many people blamed some curse that was on the land that the film was shot on, but it would turn out that there was a little bit more of a practical explanation, as many of the locations used to shoot were near nuclear testing sites from the 1940s and some that were actually still actively being used as such. Some filming took place in Utah, including exteriors that were shot in the Escalante Desert, which is 137 miles downwind of the Nevada National Security Site, which received a heavy dose of nuclear fallout from the testing. While these places have been hotbeds for cancer and the people who lived on the land full-time during the time of the atomic testings, a group of people known as downwinders, it should be noted that the Conqueror crew's rates of developing cancer were at the National average of cancer diagnoses at this time, but what was odd is that the members of the crew that were being diagnosed with cancer were developing the disease at a far younger age than the national average. This could probably be attributed to the fact that in 1953, 11 above-ground nuclear tests occurred in the Nevada desert as a part of Operation Upshot Knothole. Two-ish years later, the cast and the crew spent several hellish weeks near the site, and producer Howard Hughes also shipped 60 tons of dirt from the set back to Hollywood in order to match the terrain for reshoots. Radiation can be stored in the dirt. The filmmakers had known about the nuclear tests, but at the time, the federal government had assured residents that the tests proved no hazard to public health. In all, over 100 nuclear bombs were detonated in the area between 1951 and 1962. So here's who all got cancer, and you decide for yourself this was bad luck or something more. In 1962, the film's director, Dick Powell, was diagnosed with lymphoma and died in January 1963. Actor Pedro Armendariz died by suicide in June 1963 after being diagnosed with terminal cancer. Actress Susan Hayward died of brain cancer in 1975. John Wayne developed lung cancer in 1964 and later died from stomach cancer in 1979. Actress Agnes Moorhead, who was a non-smoker, teetotaler, and health fanatic, died of cancer, which of course can happen. You can be as healthy as can be and still get cancer. But people tend to point more to her cancer as shrapnel for blaming this film for what happened to her. Her mother Mary, for example, would maintain for the rest of her life that it was working on the conqueror that killed her daughter Agnes. 
Going forward, actor John Hoyt died of lung cancer in 1991. Actor Lee Van Cleef died from a heart attack in 1989, but his secondary cause of death was listed as throat cancer. Several of Wayne's and Hayward's families who visited the set quite regularly also would be diagnosed with cancer and or tumors. Wayne's son, Michael, developed skin cancer and his other son, Patrick, had a benign tumor removed from his chest. Hayward's son had a benign tumor removed from his mouth. Reportedly, Hughes felt guilty about his decisions regarding production, which knowing things about Howard Hughes could go either way, whether that's true or not, particularly over the decision to make this film at a hazardous site. As a result, he bought every print of the film he could find for $12 million and kept the movie out of circulation for many years until Universal Pictures purchased the film with his estate in 1979. The Conqueror, along with Ice Station Zebra, which was an espionage thriller film, are said to be two of the films Hughes watched obsessively during his final years. Rather than blame the tainted land, some have also pointed out that tobacco use could have been blamed. Wayne, for example, was a heavy smoker, amongst a series of other vices, and his wife, Pilar Paulette, would actually blame her husband's smoking habit for his demise, not some radioactive desert. Experts have weighed in over the years as to whether or not the radiated land was to blame for the cancer diagnoses of the members of the cast and crew of this film, but it's been nearly impossible to prove conclusively. Given that the rates were in line with the national averages, despite the younger-than-average age several developed the disease, it's hard to say whether or not the Conqueror's production contributed to the illnesses of these individuals, but it probably didn't help either. One of the most famous films alleged to be cursed is The Exorcist, which I think I briefly mentioned back in October 2022 when comparing the true story behind the film to what actually ended up on the screen. Directed by William Friedkin and released in 1973, The Exorcist opened the door for a litany of horror films that saturated the market for the remainder of the 1970s and well into the 80s. Arguably, still going on. There's no denying the long shadow of The Exorcist, but where did this whole curse thing start? At the beginning, at least four people died during the production of The Exorcist. This included Jack McGowan, who played the eccentric film director within the movie. He dies in the film after he's attacked by Reagan, who uses her superhuman demon strength to break his neck and then flee him out of her bedroom window. In reality, the 54-year-old died from influenza complications, which he caught during the London flu epidemic of 1972-1973. Another was Vasiliki Miliaros, I think is how you say it, who played Father Damien Cadiz's mother, who passed away before The Exorcist was released, as did McGowan. The actor, who had no previous acting experience and was cast after being spotted at a restaurant, was ruled to have died from natural causes. She was a very elderly woman, so that one's less weird. On top of that, during the production, a larger-than-normal number of the cast and crew lost family members. Notably, Jason Miller, who played Father Caras, almost lost his son to a near-fatal motorcycle accident during production. The film also suffered from major production delays, some of them caused by very strange things. The biggest one was when the set for Reagan's family home burned down after a bird flew into a circuit box. Creepily, the only part of the set that survived was the bedroom where the exorcisms take place. After the incident, which caused a six-week shooting delay, a priest was called in to bless the set because why tempt fate? 
Ellen Burstyn, who played Reagan's mom, suffered a spinal injury while being yanked by a harness, though this could be blamed on Friedkin more than anything. Burstyn was on crutches for the rest of the production and recalled the accident during a 2018 interview with The Guardian. The actress alleges that she told Friedkin that the crew member was yanking her too hard and he basically blew her off. Burstyn recalled, quote, Billy said, well, it has to look real. I said, I know it has to look real, but I'm telling you I could get hurt. The actress then alleges that the director made a signal and the cameraman, quote, smashed me on the floor after she complained. Quote, I was screaming at the top of my lungs. Through my screams, I said, turn the effing camera off. Friedkin, who is still alive as of this recording and is 87 years old, would respond by saying that Burstyn was overreacting. He said, quote, I'm sure she was hurt by the fall. You fall on your backside, it's going to hurt. But she wasn't injured. I don't believe him. Linda Blair also claimed there was poor rigging used on the set during her stunts, and it even contributed to her developing scoliosis. During a scene where the actress was yanked forward and backward in rapid succession, she begged for them to stop. Unable to tell the difference between performance and actual cries for help, the stunt continued, leading in the actress fracturing her back. Blair has said that the moment she fractured her lower spine is actually the take that appears in the film. The strange going-ons and curse or whatever didn't end when the film was complete either. During a screening in Rome, it was reported that a bolt of lightning struck a church opposite the cinema. In the States, one woman, quote, passed out and broke her jaw and later sued Warner Brothers over it. In the UK, it was reported that St. John's ambulance staff were attending screenings just in case distressed moviegoers needed to be escorted out. Claims about the exorcist curse continued, and according to several people, this was actually used more as a marketing tool than anything else. I mean, when it comes to like the, for most of the curse stuff for this film, I think most of it can be blamed on Friedkin. The dude had a reputation for being anything but chill before this film, and he had a major reputation for basically being unhinged while having questionable set safety. It was basically like anything in the name of getting the shot. In an era of filmmaking when you could get away with a whole lot of bullshit, this dude had reportedly fired off guns and even smacked his actors in attempts to get them to act in a certain way for a scene. He was definitely one of those will do anything for the shot, which is certainly evidenced in the previous examples. It sounds more like his recklessness and borderline psychotic treatment of his actors was more to blame than a quote-unquote curse. While the bird flying into the electrical box and the crazy desk are obviously not something Freakwood could have had a hand in, he certainly didn't make it easy on anybody. And as a bonus, there's an actual serial killer present in the film. Radiologist Paul Bateson, who appeared in the hospital scenes where Reagan undergoes several tests, was convicted in 1979 for the murder of writer Addison Verrill. He was later linked to six other horrific murders involving the dismemberment of gay men that were thrown into the Hudson, but there was never enough evidence to convict him for those charges. Coincidentally, though, William Friedkin would direct the 1980 film Cruising, which was based on those six murders, and from what I can tell, he directed the film before the connection was made between Bateson and the murders, so quite the coincidence. And the final thing for our exorcist curse, a few days after Cruising was released in theaters, a Texas woman suffering from schizophrenia cut out her four-year-old daughter's heart after watching The Exorcist on television. She had become convinced that her daughter was demonically possessed. 
Just to keep the demon train going, let's take a look at some strange things that occurred on the set of 1976's The Omen. The strange occurrences and freak accidents began before some of the actors even made it to set. On the way to London in September 1975, star Gregory Peck's airplane was struck by lightning. A strange coincidence, but shit happens, and this wasn't a totally out-of-the-box thing to happen. Planes get struck by lightning on average once a day, but once a day somewhere in the world. You'll see where I'm going with this in a second. Because not long after that, the executive producer's airplane was also struck by lightning when he was leaving the set and returning to Los Angeles. And if that's not enough, the film's writer's plane was also struck by lightning during production. And while shooting in Rome, another producer was just nearly struck by lightning just being a person on a street. And before you ask or just try and find reason in any of this, all of these were different planes on different days. And that wasn't the only plane drama. When the planned shooting of an action sequence got delayed, Gregory Peck was not needed to come to set, so a private jet that the producers had chartered to bring him to the set had become obsolete. The next day, the flight they had intended to put Peck on hit a flock of birds and crashed, killing everyone on board. If that wasn't bad enough, the plane struck a car driving along the road as it crashed, killing everyone in the car too. It actually gets worse because you know who was in that car? The wife and two children of the plane's pilot. One of the most morbid coincidences I can think of. There were also a series of animal attacks, if any of this wasn't wild enough. The Rottweilers that played the Hellhounds would often attack their own trainers on set and also seriously injured one of the film's stuntmen during rehearsals. There's also a scene in the movie where Damien and his mother drive through a safari park and are attacked by baboons. While watching this scene, you think, wow, the lady playing the mom is really acting her ass off. Well, turns out that, well, yes, she is a great actress, but the baboons had become so violent while shooting that scene that her reactions in the film are her legitimately freaking out because they went like crazy. Then, the day after filming that scene was done, so the production wasn't there, the zookeeper for those baboons died after being eaten by a lion or tiger, depending on the source. One of the most graphic tragedies happened to Liz Moore, who was the assistant to the special effects designer, John Richardson. The duo were driving through the Netherlands and ended up in a car accident. Richardson escaped with minor injuries, but Moore was decapitated by a tire that smashed through the window. The accident allegedly occurred on August 13, 1976, which was a Friday, by a road sign that allegedly indicated it was 66.6 kilometers away from the town of Omen, with two M's. This is an unconfirmed rumor, I will say that a few times, but we are relaxing our relationship with the truth this month. And while these were the ones, the major accidents that were reported at the time, over the years, other strange occurrences have come out. The most recent one was revealed in 2005 while filming the documentary about the curse. Producer for the film Alan Taylor further confessed that two different camera crews in two different shooting locations had the exact same technical difficulties with footage they had shot. They were broken in the exact same way, which is quite weird because they would have been using different equipment, different stuff. It's, it's quite a hefty coincidence. So if this is all the stuff they've been willing to come forward with, who knows what they haven't revealed yet. 
One of the most famous cursed films is, of course, 1982's Poltergeist. The film is about a family who deals with increasingly creepy goings-on in their home, leading to the spectral abduction of their youngest daughter, and culminates in the revelation that the family home has been built on Native American burial grounds. Several super messed up things happen around the filming of not only the first Poltergeist, but the two subsequent ones, including two tragic premature deaths. The first was Dominique Dunn, whom played Dana, the oldest daughter, who died after being attacked by her estranged ex-boyfriend in 1982. Then Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol, the youngest daughter in the family, died at the age of 12 due to a misdiagnosis of Crohn's disease in 1988. She died during a medical procedure to clear a bowel obstruction, and it was later found that she had a genetic intestinal abnormality. Two other members of the cast also died shortly after shooting their parts for one of the Poltergeist films, though to be fair, theirs are slightly less shocking due to their advanced ages. The first was Julian Beck, who died of stomach cancer shortly after he finished shooting Poltergeist 2 in 1983. Will Sampson, who played the Native American shaman in the second film, died after getting a heart-lung transplant, which was a procedure with a historically quite low survival rate. Over the years, people have claimed that these tragedies stemmed from several things, including the fact that the production allegedly used several real skeletons on set, which was cheaper than getting plastic ones at this time. This has never been corroborated, but it was very likely the case, as this was not an unusual practice at the time. Spielberg had just shot one of the Indiana Jones films, so he had access to, like, skeletons. It's it's not unlikely. In an effort to kind of calm everybody's um, nerves, I guess, Samson, the guy who played the shaman, performed an authentic exorcism after shooting wrapped up one night on the third film. Richard Lawson, who played Ryan in the first film, he was on, I think, the research team that came to help the family with the, the tiny lady with the scratchy voice. He was aboard U.S. Air Flight 405 when it crashed into Flushing Bay in March 1992. 27 of the 51 on board were killed. Lawson survived, but the event has become yet another reason why people claim that the movie brought bad luck to its cast. The last victim of the poltergeist curse is believed to be actor Lou Perryman, whom played the role of Pugsley in the original film. In 2009, the 67-year-old actor was murdered with an axe by a recently released ex-con that had broken into his home. They just did a poltergeist remake about 10 years ago, and so far, none of them have reported any unusuals going on. So maybe, at long last, this curse has become dormant. And for our last one, here's a film that I had never heard of, and I'm willing to bet most of you haven't either. It's the story of a film so cursed, it never got made. The script for the film Atuk, based on the Mordecai Richler book The Incomparable Atuk, was a satire that dealt with an Inuit on his first trip out of Alaska. Naturally, Atuk finds himself in New York City, and shenanigans commence. The first actor attached to the film version was John Belushi, who signed on to the film in early 1982. Not long after, on March 5th, 1982, the 33-year-old comedian was found dead in his Chateau Marmont hotel room of an overdose. 
The second individual attached to play Atuk was comedian Sam Kinison, who signed onto the film in 1986. The film actually shot for eight days in 1988 before a series of unseen costs forced the film to shut down. The film was put in turnaround around 1992, and before production could resume, Kinison died in a freak accident on April 10th, 1992, when his Trans Am was struck by a pickup truck driven by a drunk 17-year-old. He was only 38 years old. Next, the role was offered to John Candy, who began looking at the script in early 1994. On March 4th, 1994, the actor died of a heart attack while working in Mexico. Candy had reportedly asked his friend Michael O'Donohue to also read the script in the hopes of also getting him a gig in the film. In November of that same year, O'Donohue passed away. He had a history of chronic migraines and died from a cerebral hemorrhage at 54 years old. 1997, Atuk makes its way to another Saturday Night Live alum, Chris Farley. The larger-than-life comedian had idolized John Belushi and was eager to take a part that his idol never got the chance to do. Like Candy, Farley had not formally signed on to the film, but he had read the script and was very, very interested. A few months after he read the script, on December 18th, 1997, Farley died of an overdose in the exact same way at the exact same age Belushi was when he died. Farley had also shown the script to his SNL co-star and friend, Phil Hartman. Five months after Farley died, Hartman was murdered in his sleep by his wife in a murder-suicide on May 28, 1998. Since then, no one has come near Atuk with a 20-foot pole. Nowadays, you're probably not going to get a white guy getting away with playing an Inuit individual. But even if you were, I wouldn't touch this. Absolutely no way. For so many reasons, no. With all of these films, and for so much of what we covered this month, a lot of it can be attributed to the fact that we as humans like to find connections in an otherwise chaotic world, or make sense of something that is beyond our understanding when it comes to like the moon landing conspiracy stuff. For this week, most of the films that are considered cursed are horror movies or have supernatural themes, which honestly just amplify spooky vibes. Like, spooky things are going to happen on spooky films because spooky films are around and it just kind of gives you that. Like, when you're living in that, it's a very different scenario. Like, as an example, I worked on a true crime show. Like, as much as I love true crime, being completely around it all of the time while we were shooting it made it very not fun to be around like like it took me a long time to be able to consume true crime again because of that so it stands to reason that like if you're in a horror movie and you're around scary stuff and you're screaming and running and you know special effects and all this stuff it stands to reason that you're going to be a little bit spooked when you get home and you're you know you're going to be a little bit more nervous when you hear a creak in the night or like a weird sound coming from somewhere inside the house because you're just more mentally attuned to it I was seeing true crime wherever I went back then. Not saying some spooky shit happened on these movies, specifically The Omen. The Omen ones are real creepy. But, you know, most things, if you dig hard enough, have practical explanations. So, were these films cursed? Or just subjects of horrific existential circumstance? I leave that to you, dear listeners, to decide.
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a Letterboxd account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I Somebody bought me a coffee this week. I totally forgot to look your name up. I'll look. I'll try to remember and look at him next week. But thank you. I very much appreciate it. If you did that, I mean you, because only one person did it this in the last like couple weeks. But thank you. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next month, we're going back on the road for some more international film histories. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.